1: It's the Last Stand Podcast. And here's your host, Brian Custer. That's right. The unfiltered straight talk from some of the biggest names in sports and entertainment. That's what we deliver here on The Last Stand. I am Brian Custer. And today we got a really special guest. This man played 14 seasons in the NBA. He's an NBA Hall of Famer. And he's also an Olympic gold medalist in a true trailblazer in the game. He's none other than Spencer Haywood. Spence, welcome to The Last Stand. Hi.
0: Hi, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for having me on The Last Stand.
1: It's great to have you on. Man, listen, I want to go through your entire career, your life, because it is fascinating. And, and, And let's start with how does a young man from Silver City, Mississippi, one of 10 kids, make it and become one of the greatest basketball players to ever play.
0: It's a lot of, uh, it was a lot of work because I was born to indentured slavery in this town of Silver City, Mississippi. And let me remind you that it ain't no silver and it ain't no city. (laughs) (laughs) Population of 370 people. And we would just strictly sharecropping and picking cotton, chopping cotton, hauling corn, uh, scrapping cotton. So everything was centered around the cotton because we were part of that group that was transported down to Mississippi during the slavery period and after for the purpose of picking cotton. Now, when I tell this story, sometimes people get a little shook up that uh, the farmer put my mother and father together to breed kids. Mm. That was strong, so that they could have farm hands during that whole period. And we're not talking 1800. We're not talking. We're just talking 1960s. Wow. Yeah. And wow. so, so my family wasn't able to leave the farm because if you left the farm, and the farmer always claimed that you owed him something, so you could hurt your family, kill your family. And I was born in and the headquarters of the Klan. So that was surrounding my life. And so I I came out on my, uh, on my birthday, 422, 1949 and lo and behold, everybody, my brothers tell me the story and they tell me that everybody saw this baby come out and they said, man, this guy is going to be the best cotton picker we have ever seen. Look how big his hands are. <laughs> I know, you know. So, so so I was born with the idea that that's what I was going to be, the best cotton picker in the county first, and then I would advance to the state. And so what I was doing as a young play, a young person, not thinking myself as a young player, but I was out in the fields and we all had to work by the clock, which was sun up to sundown.
1: Dare that I only- ask, do you get did you get paid? you get paid $2 a day.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, and some days you didn't get that. But what I started doing at four and five, I started picking cotton and I grew into my body and I picked more and more. And I was picking with both hands and the cotton bowl is like a thorn. You have to stick your finger in and get it and pull it out, put it into a sack and you go all the way down that row of cotton or two rows of cotton and it gets full of cotton and it weighs about a hundred pound because you had a hundred pound sack, which was a a nine foot sack or a seven foot sack. I always worked with the nine footer because I wanted to be the best. And so uh, you put this cotton and I was like 10, I would sling this hundred pounds over my shoulder, walk all the way back to the trailer, weigh it, it's 100 pounds or whatever it was, then climb up in the trailer, trailer. My brother would hand me the sack, and then I'd dump it. And then I'd go back and start picking. So, what is the moral of the story is that I thought I was like becoming the best cotton picker, but I was training for basketball, basketball because my legs got big, my thighs got big, just like Jimmy the Greek was telling the story, you know, when he said, Yeah, it the breathing right. process. Right. So they were the best, two best farm hands. So the kids were the, the best athletes. So I ended up, you know, not becoming the best cotton picker. <laughs> but uh, I remember my mom put a basketball hoop up said, look, you boys, we need you to to have a basketball hoop up because y'all are not, you're not gonna get in any trouble going up and down the highway because you know, you walk the highway there and the railroad tracks and things happen, people shoot at you and things like that. So she put we put up the hoop. We had a barrel rim. We didn't have money to buy a real hoop. We put up a barrel rim on the hoop and it was a big, big old hoop, man. And we were like, well, we don't have a basketball. And she said, listen, I can make you a basketball. How are you gonna make a basketball? So she made a basketball out of this crocus sack and that's a sack that your potatoes and so on come in and she stuffed it with uh, cotton, quilts and you know stuff like that from around the house. And she said, this is your ball but you guys got to make up some rules. We made up a rule that you would take two bops, boop, bump, or you can make the pass or the shot. Unless you were my brother Andrew, then he took three. <laughs> so, so we started playing like that and with a no bounce basketball and lo and behold later on like in a year later we got a bouncy we got a bouncy a bouncing ball from the junkyard down in silver city and we patched that baby up it was, had a hole in we patched that baby up man that baby felt like ooh this was another world. I was like, oh, we got a real ball. And the hoop was calling out your name because it was this big. It was a huge hoop, you know, because it's a barrel rim. Right. So, and your backboard was like, if it hit the backboard, it stuck and just fell through. So you were hyped as a player. You was just hyped up like, oh man, I can't miss. I can't. <laughs> and, and then when I got to high school, which I was not in high school, but I was in junior high school. I was in the ninth grade. The coach said, and this was a mile away from Silver City because there ain't no school. There's nothing there. So we had to go to Belzoni. And he says, well, look, boy, can you play? Are you good like your your older brother? My brother played earlier in, in Silver City and then my aunt picked him up and took him to Detroit and he played there. And so I said, yeah, I can, I'm better than any of them. <laughs> so, so he put me on the court and I'm playing, but my nerves had went and my height had, I had grown to like six, four, six, five. So my coordination was like, oh God, what am I going to do? My legs, my hands couldn't coordinate. And then we started playing. And one night, the, uh, uh, my, my center, got thrown in jail for throwing a brick through a window. And the coach says, you know what, you're starting tonight. And I'm like, oh no, not me, I can't. I can't, I just can't coach. <laughs> he said, no, you are starting. And so I jumped ball and the jump, I was jumping against Sam Lacey who was from Indianola, Mississippi, who played in the NBA for years. So Sam decided to test my strength and he said, Hey, look at me, boy. And I said, okay, what do you say? And he spat on me. <laughs> and wow. I was like, whoa, referee didn't give him a tack. So I got the ball. Uh, but he tipped the ball. And the guy passed the ball to me. And I was like combobulated. So I just went. What I saw in front of me, I was driving my hair down just like my brothers had taught me, keep your hair down, don't be like fancy, just make that layup and, and pop it in nice. I'll pop that layer, layup in, yeah. And I looked over to my sister, yeah, baby, what do you think? And she had a hand between her hair. And I was like, what did I do? And everybody in the gym was like, you put it in the wrong basket. <laughs> So then, you know, uh, I got myself together and I had a good game, and everybody was like, "Man, he's going to be better than his brother Leroy." So, uh, so you that's went when... from
1: so you went from Mississippi, and then you go up north now. But yeah, um, I'm on my way up north. It, it, happened- I I heard and it, it, trust me, if it, it, please correct me if I'm wrong. They living down south, and you talked about you guys were picking cotton, things of that nature that living was so hard, that you guys had to make do with a lot of things, even if it was dinner when it was roadkill, what have you, that was dinner sometimes.
0: Oh yeah, that was real good eating instead, my friend. (laughs) When you don't have food, because sometimes, you know, the weather gets bad and you get a little taste of snow and you can't hunt the rabbits because the rabbit has wool in his ears, I mean, in his back and his shoulder, so you can't eat him, he's poisoned. And then you go looking for, for uh, fish. The fish is laying low on the bottom. We don't have those kind of lines where we can go down and get them, and we can't go gigging and get them. So we had to damn scrap for food. So we walk along highway 49, the same highway 49 that BB King, all the great blues players will, will go along and wait, wait for somebody to knock something over. And then we took it and brought it home and clean it up, put some gravy on it, put some rice with it. Perfecto. <laughs> <laughs> wow.
1: so, so yeah Yeah.
0: So tell you, we didn't eat dogs, so it would, that okay. was. That, <laughs> so all the other stuff was like, you know, pretty, pretty good game. <laughs> oh my so, gosh. So lo and behold, uh, my mother says, you're getting big and you're tall. And these boys are going to come around meaning that the white guys are going to come around and try to put you in jail because they want to keep you on the farm
1: Mm. that's what
0: they did so lo and behold they put me in jail overnight and i came out of jail and bells on it my mother said we got to get out of here you got to get out of here i can't go with you baby you got to trust in the lord and i'm gonna send you to chicago to be with your brothers up there I arrived at Chicago and I remember, <laughs> you know, in the airport, I mean, the bus station, you know, I saw these brothers, the Nation of Islam, and I'm like, you mean black folks are in the newspaper? He was like, yeah, brother, what's, what's wrong with you? Where are you from? I said, I'm from Silver City, man. Come on. <laughs> Don't you know where Silver City, Mississippi is? <laughs> And my brother came, oh, come on in, man. Don't talk to them boys, them boys, they're rough, man. So we went on home and stuff. And then my brother came over from the one I told you had left and went to Detroit. He was at Bowling Green State University. Mm -hmm. He came over and just as a family, and he and I went out and started playing basketball on the west side of Chicago, uh, because I was intended to go to Crane Tech. And so he decided, but no, I don't know where we going, but we we got to get out of here. Your brothers, your brothers are gonna screw you up big time. And I'm like, well, your brothers too. So, <laughs> so we get in the car and we drive to Bowling Green State University. And I can't stay on campus because the, the dorm matron is looking at me like, well, where is he gonna be? You know. So I stayed around and around. Everybody and different players put me in their room. And lo and behold, the summer came around, and then they had this big tournament at crunk most folks think that crunk is just boxing outdoors. right indoor. exactly the box but yes. no it's an outdoor outdoor facility as well so they had this high school uh all-star event coming up with the uh with the Detroit players so I came in and said hey I want to play my brother got me in with uh this guy named Will Robinson and Will said, let's put him into the game. Let's see what he got. And then if he's all right, we'll, we'll try to find him a place to stay in Detroit and he'll be all right here. So I was playing for life and death out there. So I went out and played at 27 points, 15 uh, rebounds. Wow. And I was running and I was like, this game is over. Because I was used to 12 hours a day, as opposed to a two hour game. Yeah, hour. yeah. So then they says, well, Let's see how the boy do against Cassie Russell, Bill Buttons and all of those guys from the University of Michigan, Michigan State. Who so they want to play
1: in the NBA, Cassie Russell, yeah.
0: Yeah, so I, I, I played in that game, I had 15 points and seven rebounds. And then Dave Bing says, the great Dave Bing Hall of Famer says, let me try him out on our squad. So he put me on with the Pistons. I'm like 15 years old, so I'm- Wow. Like- yeah, I'm out here with the, the greats, man, Reggie Harding and all these guys. So, I went out there and I played. I got like 15 points and seven rebounds, and that's when the coach came over and said, "All right, we got to find you a place to stay, son." And he adopted me, Will Robinson, the first black coach in NC2A Division One history, mm. adopted me, and and put me into his home. But I was downtown with all of the the judges, the lawyers, the doctors, and all of that in Detroit. And then came along Mrs. Bell, who said, well, you know, he lived to live near the school, and they were trying to find people to let me stay with them near the school. And so she said, no, he's staying with us. And so that was my home. And I'm just saying all of this now, because your audience might not understand, but I, I'll tell you, it was God's design. It wasn't it was nothing I was doing special or anything. I was being placed at the right place at the right time. All of this was divine order. My mother said it. You know, God has got you, baby. Don't you worry about a thing. And and so the season came around. I played basketball in my in my in my uh, junior year. And then they said, Well, look, we got to win ch- state championship for the city of Detroit for the first time in 35 years. We had had a drought, and so that's when. Dave Bean came back into the picture and said, we're gonna bring the Pistons over. We're gonna scrimmage you guys when we're we're not playing. And it'll be a good scrimmage too, because we had Ralph Simpson. We had like five guys go pro off the team, baseball and football and two in basketball, NBA. And so they would scrimmage against us. And then Melvin Franklin from the Temptations was like, I'll watch out for him. Let him ride in my nice ride, you know? (laughs) So, so I'm down. We were like rolling around and he's talking about, don't you get in no trouble, man? You don't want to, you don't want to be like David, you know. And I'm like, who's David? Like David Ruffin, no
1: fool. I'm like, oh, okay, okay, okay. So I'm like, so you, know, you, had, you had you had no idea how great these guys are. You just you're just thinking these are regular guys, whomever, but you don't know you're you're traveling around and guys who are taking care of you are some of the greatest. People who've had an impact on, on, on this generation. On this generation,
0: because I'm from Silver, silver city, city, Mississippi, where it ain't no silver and it ain't no city. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm talking about Stephen must have heard me in the studio and wrote the Hard Time Mississippi. But nevertheless. <laughs> so we get we get all the way to the class A state championship. And the whole city is like, you know, because it was blown up in the papers and on the yeah. radio, WCHB, all of the radio DJs was talking, the babies are gonna take it. And we got our baby from Mississippi. He's ours now in Detroit. He's gonna take it. We're gonna take it. So we get up to uh, Michigan State for the cha- class A state championship. And Will Robinson decide, y'all can't stay in the hotel. You're gonna get in some trouble. Somebody gonna sabotage my run at this class A state championship. So you're gonna stay with your sister because Mrs. Bell had her her daughter was at Michigan State and <clears throat> uh, what's his name? Clint, uh, he, all the football players was around at Michigan State, uh, Bubba Smith, all those mm-hmm. guys, you know? And so she said, well, why don't you stay at the apartment with her and her roommate? So. We stayed in there a the roommate and just slept on the floor and did all that stuff and never saw anybody else and i'll tell you a story about the roommate the roommate is the wife of, of now head of nike basketball lynn merritt mm. wow <laughs> so we win the class a state championship there's going to be this big parade and we are so stupid like as a team we was like we don't want to be a parade. We want to be at Top Hats, which was a hamburger joint on 8 Mile and Ryan. So we went there and all the kids came out and we celebrated and we never did get a chance to have that uh, that parade that we were, we were talking about because we were just, we was getting ready to go off to college. We was like getting, finishing up our grades, trying to tighten them bad boys up. You know, we was being tutored by, uh, Dr. Wayne Dyer was my tutor. Uh, I had my English professors tutoring me. You gotta be ready for this college tour, baby. You gotta be ready. And so I wanted my mom to see me play because she had never seen me play basketball. And she was in Mississippi. How, did this, how could this happen? So I signed a letter of intent to go to the University of Tennessee. That way I can play against Jackson's, uh, uh, uni- Old Miss University in yeah. Mississippi State. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, I get there on campus and, you know, like pre pre prepping for the year academically and 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 uh, basketball wise. Adolph Rupp says, well, you know, I lost to five brothers. Which is if people want to watch the film, it's called Glory Road, Texas Western. And so I'm supposed to have the first black to come down here, superstar. And so that argument ensued and everything. So we, was in the, we were in the middle of it. My friend Wiley and Will Robinson and I, and Will said, let's say to hell with this. If you go to a junior college and you stay for one year and you maintain that B average that you've been working on, you can leave after one year. So I was like, hey, cool, no problem. So I went to Trinidad thinking that I'm going close to Denver and close to Albuquerque. Neither was true. Will told me a fibby. <laughs> it was like 360 miles, 320 miles from Denver, 300 and no, 410 from Albuquerque. So I was out there and all you had to do is study, play basketball and just enjoy life. And that I did at this junior college. And then the 68 Olympics rolled around. Lo and behold, there's uh, rumbles about Kareem is going to, he was Lou Alcindor at the time that he's going to boycott the 68 Olympics. Right. What does that got to do with me? Nothing. <laughs> and so he boycotted the 68 Olympics. Elvin Hayes and Wes Unsell, other Hall of Famers, they decided to sign a pro contract. And these for the, for the young players that are listening, back in those days, if you were a, a pro, you had on, on paper, you have not played a full game you only could be an amateur in the Olympics. It was the amateur games before 96, I think it was whenever the dream team went over Mm -hmm. and changed it. And uh, so they said, well, we're going to
1: put together a junior college team and bring them down to Albuquerque. Because all those, all the top players, uh, like mm -hmm. you said, Lou Alcindor, and those guys said, we're not playing because of obviously what was going on in the country at that time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the black movement. Mm -hmm. And so, Uh, They put together this team and we went down to Albuquerque to play against the NIA, the NCAA Division One, and the military. And so they had all of us in the training facilities there. And time came around. We were just playing and playing and playing. And then it came time for the, you know, like to make the cuts. So, M-I-E, me (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i.e. me. <laughs> me. I'm thinking, I got me some gear. I can go back to the boys in Detroit. Hey, check this out, guys. I tried out for the Olympic team. And it's like, Spencer Haywood first player pick. I was like, oh no, not me. <laughs> not me for the Olympic team. Even though I turned it out, you know, in the trials, and I was like, yeah, I, I think I deserve this. And then I'm gonna be playing with Pistol Pete. Whoa, man, Pete Maravich. And he said, no, Pete Maravich is cut. Wow. Rick Mount is cut. Calvin Murphy is cut. Wow. Dan Issel is cut. Tom Bowinkle is cut. And I'm like, well, whoa, wait a minute. And then we, we selected Charlie Scott from North Carolina, uh, Jojo White from the Kansas yeah. who had lost to uh, Texas Western in the, in the quarters or in the finals that year before they got to Kentucky. And uh, we had a strong team, but it was a mixture of of like uh, uh, US Army, AAU back then was a big deal. It wasn't like AAU, you playing amateur. It was like next to the pros.
1: Mm. So we had
0: two players from there, from Akron Goodyear. Isn't that ironic? LeBron from Akron, that was the professional team there. And so uh, we got together and, and was like getting ready to go. And they said, well, you know, everybody got to bring in that passport. I mean, your, I, your, uh, your birth certificate. So oh, I don't have a birth certificate. And I was like, well, why don't you have a birth certificate? Because I'm from Silver City. <laughs> Nobody has a birth certificate there because we don't have a hospital to be born in. You're born by a midwife and she put it down someplace and you're good. And everybody, the farmers and everybody vouch for you. That baby was born at that time, it's okay. So they had to, they called my mother and my mother says, well, I'm not going to send up my Bible. No, no, no. I got church on Sunday and this Bible hadn't been by my side since I was a girl. So." We uh, So the, the Olympic Committee says, well, we'll send someone down to take a picture of it. We'll take it down to the Jackson Daily News, uh, in the Jackson Daily News, the newspaper in Jackson, Mississippi, where Dion is coaching. <laughs> and he came down, took a picture of the, of the Bible, went back to vital statistics in Jackson. I got my pass, I got my birth certificate And I was well on my way because I had that passport and I was like I just looked at that passport like wow this is so beautiful this is the beautiful most beautiful thing I'm a citizen I'm a real person (laughs) that's unbelievable man (laughs) yeah and so uh so we off to Russia into Yugoslavia and into Finland as pre-Olympians you know uh before we reach to Mexico City before the games so we we go over to Russia, Yugoslavia and play and we come back and we were going to, we are going to scrimmage the, the Detroit, I mean the New York Knicks, Willis Reed and all those guys. And so everybody said this team is going to lose, they are pitiful. And so we played against the Knicks and we won and Willis Reed and Dave the Bush Dave the Busher, was there and he was like, come on, De- Detroit baby, because he's from Detroit too. Dave Busher. and so Willis was down home and he was some, we were like at that relationship. So he was like, man, you guys might win that gold medal. And I was like, whoa, first time the team ever thought about like, you know, we got this. And uh, in the next round, we landed in Cincinnati. We wanted to play the Cincinnati Royals in an exhibition before we head over to Mexico city. And there was the big old my man, the big old Oscar Robertson. Oh, that was my two players in the league that I really dug. Was like the big old and Bill Russell. I was like, oh man, I was just like gazing at him. He's like, stop looking at me, stop staring. You got to play the game. You got to win this gold medal, boy. Come on. So we played against them, and then after that, Oscar sit us down and talked to us about it. Wayne Embry. Uh, Jack Twyman and all those people, they were just talking, you guys are going to win it. And we was like, we left there so high on on like just, we're gonna win this gold medal. So we get to Mexico City and lo and behold, there's all of this rambling going on. Well, who's going to be the blacks that stand up for America right now, for black America. And we're here, we're at the games. We are the one. No, no, we got to have some revolutionaries in here. And then Tommy Smith and John Carlos come walking in, John, you know, New York City, Hat Creek. You know, he was like, yeah, man. And so George Foreman come in, I'm like, look at this big old dude, man. (laughs) So we are putting the, you know, the whole commissary of all of the players together. And so we were just, you know, just talking, Bob Beeman. He's talking a whole bunch of yak. Like, man, I'm going to jump over the pit this altitude is gonna take me over it. No, wait a minute,
1: wait a minute, wait a minute, Spence. I, I, I. So you're in this room, right? And and you got George Foreman right here. You got Bob Beeman over here. John Carlos. You got Tommy's. At at, at this time, I'm assuming you had to be 19. Yeah, just at at turn 18. 19, yeah. Did did you know at the time these are going these are going to be some of the greatest athletes? Ever play the sport, or was it was it just like, oh yeah, this is this is old George from Texas. This is old Bob Beeman from this is Bob from whatever. And I mean, yeah. did you did you have any idea how great these guys were, or were going to be? No, I'm from Silver City. No,
0: <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I knew of John Carlos and Thomas Smith because it was you know all the rambles that was going on there. And George Foreman, I, I knew him because, you know, he and I would like, you know, that was our brand was to get to the commissary and try to eat them out of a home. I mean, that was the whole joy of hanging with George. It's like, George could eat more than me. Bro. We were like, <laughs> we're gonna eat them out of a home. And so when the meeting came about, we were like, I knew him, but I didn't know what kind of athletes because I was concentrating on basketball right. and my guys. And then I had Jojo White who was from the military, but also from the University of Kansas. And you got Charlie Scott who is Dean Smith is all circling around. And, and so, and they're like, don't you mess this up. Don't you mess this up, you fool, you know? Because you know, you, you ain't from Detroit. You're from Mississippi. Why are you acting like you're a Detroiter now? And I'm like, I'm from Detroit, boy <laughs> I'm, I'm Motown all the way. So we get into the meeting and we're you know, just sitting around, looking around at the players and, and all of the people. Wilma Rudolph was there and so she talked a minute about you know, what it was like with her Olympic year and how Muhammad Ali was like there with him and all of that stuff. And then we were like, okay, okay. And so we start talking about, well, is there anybody here is uncomfortable with participating in the Olympics? This year and so you know there was some mm, yeah, we're here so what's the big deal and then the nerves was getting a little shaky so they said let's bring in our next guest and they brought in Jesse Owens. Wow like whoa man I mean we know that story so you're just sitting there listening to him talk and And John is, you know, New York, so he's John Carlos. So he's like, you know, kind of question him a little bit. So Jesse kind of got a little tight and he said, hey, how would you have felt if you had to run before Hitler? And look, look That's
1: that's, that's, that's the mic drop right there.
0: That's the mic drop. So all of a sudden we were like, oh boy. What you gonna say, John? What you gonna say, John Carlos? So John, you know, came back with a little, little twitch, and then we all said, "Let's lace him up. Let's get ready to to go." And we went out, and we just performed in each one of our events. We just performed, performed, performed. Then it got to the finals, and before that, Bob Beeman in the track and field that earlier that day, he jumped out of the pit, set a re- world record that lasted for like thirty years or so. Yes. So. Uh, and then we had to go over to practice, but then the big race was coming up. We got, got man, John and Tommy, they coming up, and so they race came about. And so when they won uh, first and third, and we were like, John, why did you look over? Because he would have won, he would have won second if right. he hadn't looked over, and he did. And the, the Australian won second, and he won third, and they get up on the podium gonna salute the brothers back home and make sure that they know that we did a, a wonderful thing we're supporting the black movement because it was the same as now you know as the black movement black lives matter so and
1: did, did they told they told you in that meeting that they were no. going to have they were going to do it
0: no mm. no we didn't know anything about what they was going to do but you know they had dr harriet which was there a lot of people were putting pressure on them you know you got to do something you the two elders here and you're the You know, you're from San Jose State, the great track team, and who's going to make a stand? And so they put the glove on and went up on the stand and did this. Lo and behold, the Olympic committee, all of a sudden, get out of here. You are no longer welcome in this village.
1: Wow. Kicked them out
0: kicked them out, ran them through all of the press and the press was there. And, and a lot of us players came down and see what the hell is going on? And they're kicking them out. And then they're looking at us like, if you do anything, you think about anything as a threat, you're next. And so Will Robinson had to be flown in from Detroit and he flew. they flew him in. He got up in my face. If you think of doing anything, you're not gonna make it back to Detroit, son. I'm gonna kill you down here. And they don't care if I kill you down, <laughs> down here in Mexico City. Right. But I was like, I'm not gonna do anything anyway. I'm good, we're just trying to win the game. So we had a, our final game came up. And then we like, um, we knocked off the Yugoslavs because they knocked off Russia. and And I get up on the stand and I'm thinking, wow. Four years ago, I was picking cotton in that great big city called Silver City, <laughs> Mississippi, and here I am now with a passport and a gold medal getting ready to be placed on my neck. Oh, my God. It's just a, everything from a young man that you had pushed aside because everything was just moving so fast. I didn't know. And so when I got ready, they put that gold medal on. I just melted, Brian. I was like, just, oh, my God, my legs, I can't hold them. I can't keep myself up. And my teammates held me for a minute and I was like, oh boy, let me shake it off. I'm a man. <laughs> and then uh, later that evening, George Foreman had his fight and George was always saying, man, I can't do nothing. I can't mess with this. I got I to win that, that the gold medal and I'm going to be champion, heavyweight champion of the world. So George won, beat the Russian, put him down. <laughs> like a like they did with a hog in Mississippi, you know? <laughs> it put you down, boy. <laughs> and and George came out and broke out the American flag with his, you know. And we was like, okay, that's not bad. But then everybody got mad at George. What are you doing? You Uncle Tom, you selling out and stuff. And George was like, no, nah, I, I I was living in Boys Hope, a Boy's home in, in Texas. Mm-hmm. He wasn't living with anybody either, like me. So we were like, Plan for our life, and so, so George uh, did his thing, and then we all ended up getting ready to do our closing ceremonies and everything, and then we embarked back home. And, and, and that's house- when the, you, your 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 biggest fight was getting ready to come. But go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, at that time, uh, Howard Cosell is telling me in my ear, "You won the gold medal, but I'll tell you one thing: those blacks in Detroit is gonna be mad as hell at you at what you did by coming here and playing." And uh, what do you think about that? I was like, "They love me." <laughs> <laughs> so I get on the plane, and Will says, "They're gonna be all right. Don't listen to Howard Cosell." So we we fly into Detroit, and we're thinking, you know, them brothers are gonna get me, man. The Panthers, everybody man, nah. I land in Detroit, all of the brothers and sisters and white, and black, Hispanics, because we have a large Hispanic community in Detroit. They all was out at the, at the airport, at Metro Airport, champion, champion, oh, that's great. bravo, bravo. And I was like, you talking to Will or talking to me? <laughs> and so, so then, you know, I, uh, the governor, who was George Romney, who was Mitt Romney's father, He said, we need you to come home to play at the University of Detroit. Detroit had been burnt down the year before with Mm -hmm. the riots. Mm -hmm. And the governor, uh, Mayor Kavanaugh said, please come home and we'll give the job to Will Robertson because he's the best coach in the country. We're going to give it to him in your junior year. I mean, after uh, junior and senior year. So I was like, great. So I signed with the University of Detroit, carried out my orders, became the outstanding player of the year. Kareem was the MVP. Then the draft came about, where the ABA, there was an ABA, which is the American Basketball Association, mm-hmm. and the NBA, which is the National Basketball Association.
1: And the ABA, for people who know, that was the red, white, and blue type of basketball they had. Where obviously Dr. J uh, made made famous before he came into the NBA.
0: Yeah, and so. Uh, the ABA went after Kareem. They said, we got to have Kareem Abdul-Jabbar come over here to save this league. And Kareem decided, no, nah, I'm going to Milwaukee. And then they came courting me, saying, you're not happy with this situation because they had hired a new coach at the University of Detroit named Jim Harding over Will Robinson. And I thought, wow, what a betrayal. And so I then said, I think I wanna go pro and I wanna save my, get my mother off of her knees in Mississippi because my mother back at went out and she was still picking cotton from the ground and dragging herself on the ground. Mm. So uh, Hannah Storm's father, Mike Storm says, we got a way to sell this thing. We're gonna sell it as you need to be coming to the ABA under this hardship rule that we just created. And so they created this thing called the hardship rule. That you had to show extreme hardship, and you could come into the ABA, but it was the, the reason why they did it because they were in battle with the NBA because they couldn't get the draft picks. So how would we get all of these young players before they get ready for draft? So and Julius Irvin and George Gervin, all those guys were just hanging out there, and they were just you know like I don't like it here in college. I want to make me some money. I want me a Cadillac too, and so. <laughs> so I was that, that first player to do this. And I broke the rule and they said, well, look, if you can score seven points and maybe four or five rebounds, this would work. So I had averaged 30 points and mm. 20 rebounds that year as a 19-year-old rookie. And I was rookie of the year, leading scorer, leading rebounder, MVP of the All-Star Game, MVP of the league, I was like, Yeah. So we enter this thing, you know, so the 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 ABA got together and said, hey, we're gonna make you a big splash in the papers. We're gonna make you the highest paid player in the world. They gave me a contract for $1.9 million. But, and I signed the thing without, you know, because I was underage. So I just signed it because I knew that they loved me so much. Right. uh, This ain't Mississippi. Right. (laughs) So I signed the contract and the contract read that I would have to be in servitude to the owner of the Rockets which is Ringsby truck line and I would have to be in servitude from age 50 to age 70 and I would get my money from there and also the money would be put away (laughs) I know (laughs) in this ten thousand dollar dog off plan which is on Wall Street and from my age of like 19 all the way up through until 50, that's when the money would accumulate all of this $1.5 million, just BS completely. And, and I went back in there and I said, I got a lawyer. I got this young guy named Al Ross, this Jewish lawyer. He was like talking a bunch of talk cause he went to Michigan state. Yeah, man, we're gonna get them. They're gonna make them pay up. you know. So we go in there like, yeah, man, sit down with the owners, so what do y'all want? We want you to redo this contract. And he looked me in the eye and said, you get your nigga ass out of here and you take that Jew lawyer with you. Get out of here, we got you signed and we're not breaking our rule. I was like, oh, Mississippi again. <laughs> and so Sam Schumann, who owned the Seattle Supersonics, Jerry Colangelo, who owned the Phoenix Suns were the two expansion teams. And Jerry said, Hey, if we're going to fight the ABA, we got to do something about it. Jack Kent Cooke, who owned the Lakers and all of the other, other owners, no, nah, we're not going to stoop that low. And so, uh, Jerry Colangelo had signed Connie Hawkins the, the year before. And he said, see what I had turned out with Connie? This is, this is the movement now. We're going to raid that league and tear it down and, because we won't have a merger. And the owners were against it. But Sam Schumann said, I'm gonna sign Spencer Haywood and I'm gonna sign him now and he's gonna play this year. And I was like, my man. And he said, well, not only that, but your contract for 1.9, I'm gonna pay it out over the 10 year period of time. Here it is, cash money. Wow. And I was like, whoa, this is my kind of guy. So I land in Seattle and Lenny Wilkins is the coach. Rob Thorne is the, is the assistant coach and Tom Macheri is the associate coach. And all of them had on uniforms like I have on because they were player coaches. <laughs> so we had nobody in a suit as a coach, because wow. everybody was player coaches. So we got out there and we started playing, and then I would get to the game, my first big game. And I played the first game, Seattle was like, hey man, who's this new style of play? Cause I ripped the ball off, kicked it out to Lenny and Lenny like, get the run on. I started running, he threw the ball to me and I was like, reached back and grabbed it with one hand and dunked the thing and looked up in the stands and said, yeah, I'm here. And he says, oh, he's a hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm coming from the ABA baby, this is what we do. And we don't do that in the NBA. And Lenny said, y'all gonna like him. And so we played that game and everything turned out. And then I get ready to play the next game. They served me with an injunction. And they said, just before the, the jump ball, ladies and gentlemen, we have an illegal player on the floor, number 24. This game is under protest as well as we have an injunction for him to leave the floor and go into the locker room. So I I left and went into the locker room and just cried that I couldn't play.
1: And people have to have to realize because at at that time you had to be what four years removed from high school to play in the NBA at that time.
0: Exactly. So here I am breaking all of the rules. The NC2A was like, let's sue him because he's destroying our revenue stream. They couldn't say it publicly so they wrapped themselves in the NBA lawsuit. The ABA says he violated his contract with us. We're suing him too. And then the University of Detroit said we lost money because he left us. So I had all of these lawsuits wrapped up in one and here I am trying to play basketball. So I waited for 10 games and then I get my injunction to play for 10 games and I played but yet they were like announce make the announcement illegal player this game is under protest and they had told the greats all of the great players that if this guy win this case they're gonna push you out on the back end you know playing one against the other you know
1: yes and so
0: the players didn't back me the union didn't back me will chamberlain jerry west oscar Robinson, all of them they were like nah we don't we don't want him pushing us out and so i just played and they roughed me up tom machere who's in there in the rafters up in Golden State, he, would, like, he was a, a mad Russian, so he would like fight everybody. And I was like, pretty cool. Let Tom take the to beating, but he never lost because <laughs> everybody was afraid of him. He had protected Wilt, you know, when he was up in, uh, Wilt Chamberlain, when he was up in uh, Golden State. And so um, I played my 10 games and then they got another injunction for me not to play. In the meantime, my case had worked its way from the lower courts all the way out to the district court. And then I get another injunction to play. And this is like 10 games down the line. And then I get 10 more games in and they cut my games uh, to nine when I got to Cincinnati. Cincinnati, I was like looking so forward to playing against the big O and thanking him for what he had did. They let me walk out on that floor, Brian. And they said, ladies and gentlemen, we have an injunction against the illegal player number 24, and they kicked me out into the snow, mm-hmm. cause I couldn't be on the grounds in which the arena sat on. Wow. So I was kicked out into the snow, and I'm out there just freezing like crazy. And the police that was sit, sitting out there to guard me from going on the grounds, they decided, well, no, this young guy that fought for America in the Olympics. Let's put him in that car. We're gonna lose our jobs over it, but we're gonna warm him up. So they warmed me up and got me right. And we talked about all of the things that I went through. And then it's time the game was over. Then the bus pulled around and they were like, what are you doing in the public's car? I was like, we're just talking. And so Lenny, get on this bus, let's go. And so we get off and we're gone. And then by that time, my case had worked its way to the Supreme court. And Will Robertson, knew Thurgood Marshall because of the judges from Detroit, Judge Bell, Judge Damon Keith, all of those people were part of the judges, (laughs) that the the black judges in America. And then we had the most in Detroit at that time. So when we get there, uh, Thurgood Marshall is here in the case and he said, gentlemen, we cannot, Stop this man from playing because the rule itself is tainted. In baseball, you can go when you're 19 or 20 and play professional. Tennis, you can go play when you, whenever you want to. The same thing for hockey. So, are you saying because this is a black man and revenue sharing for the, the NC2A, he's illegal to go? This is making no sense. So he brought up the Sherman Antitrust Act and the Sherman Antitrust rule and said, hey, you know, this man is not, uh, he's eligible to play. And the court came in seven to two in my favor. And I was like, whoa, because I was in Baltimore, we're getting ready to play Gus Johnson and Wes Unsell, all them boys, Earl Monroe, all of those boys up in the Baltimore Bullets, you know, and, and, My lawyer was like, yeah, we got him. We got him because we had the law firm that we had was Catterson, Quinn, and Felser, which was uh, Governor Pat Brown, Jerry Brown's father. Uh, We had the MGM uh, entertainment uh, attorney, and we had Frank Rothman who did pre-agency for baseball, basketball, all of that. And so it was just a a beautiful team. And, And lo and behold, we won it. And, but the players didn't accept me yet because again, I won the case, but then in the back of their mind, he's going to bring all these young players in and we out of a job, but not really because we can kick all them young boys coming in behind. We don't have no problem there. And so we got to Milwaukee and Kareem, normally they just, everybody went downstairs and stayed downstairs for a minute, let me sweat and then come back up. Kareem didn't leave. He said, hey. This guy's trying to invade my space. I'm the best young player, and then everybody's talking about Spencer. Hey, well, I want to play him, and so he came up and he stayed up, and we got out there and dapped, and then all the other players came up, and and the game was on, and they had that picture on Sports Illustrated that you know he's welcomed by Kareem, and it was like, okay, this, this thing is on, and uh, that's how I I ended up at wow. the Supreme Court and won that case, and. If you want to talk about the value of winning that case, uh, we only had 14 teams in the NBA. Once the case was won, we had a pool in which to draft from, because normally guys wait for four years around in college or something, something bad will happen. And then uh, uh, we expand, 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 and then... Uh, the players themselves, we got so many players coming into the NBA, McAdoo, all those guys coming, Dantley and everybody was coming into the NBA. And the ownership of teams went from 300 million to what we call today, 3 billion, you know, mm. and the players themselves was making, you know, Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell was arguing over the year before about who's going to be the highest paid player. And they gave him 125, 125,000. And then... Brad Auerbach said, I'll make you the highest paid player. And then he gave Bill Russell $1 more. And that's how he became the (laughs) highest paid player. And then the revenue went up crazy in the NBA. And also, let me just finish this last one, is that by players coming in this early, I have helped create it or have created a total of $30 billion in player revenue just in salary alone over all
1: of those years. And they still don't know who I am. Wow. the, The crazy thing about all of this is because of Spencer Haywood, you're saying that's how we got a Moses Malone. That's how we got a Kobe Bryant. That's how we got a Kevin Garnett. That's how we got a LeBron James because they were able to come straight from high school, right to the league.
0: And we also got Magic Johnson. He left two years at Larry Bird. We got Michael Jordan. Every player, Elijah One, all of them, is under this one little guy from Silver City, Mississippi, where it ain't no silver and it ain't
1: no city. And usually when you hear it, they, they will say it's the one-and-done rule. In your opinion, what should that rule be called? That rule is, should be
0: called the Spencer-Haywood rule. And Thurgood Marshall said it before. He said, look, y'all need to trademark this. You need to take care of this for this young boy because they, ain't gonna never, they're gonna, they, they are gonna push him down in a hole. And you know, by saying, oh no, we call, it the, call the rule the hardship for years. Then they went from the hardship to early entry for years. And now they call him one and done, which if you are two and done, three and done, it doesn't make sense anyway. But now I'm lobbying to the league and to the players association, please, man. You know, y'all talking about Black Lives Matters and all of this stuff. And for a guy like LeBron James, I mean, he's like $200 million richer in just player salary because of me. Because if he had to stay for four years, he would have lost all that money. He would have lost the years on his legs. He would have lost the scoring titles and all of this stuff so it's just kind of crazy so I'm waiting for them to say no it's the Spencer Hayward rule and and let's move on
1: but uh has anybody any of the the great players from today contacted you and said thank you
0: yeah LeBron James just did a special on Showtime called uh the Shut Up and Dribble series but he did one called the rule, which he did a really excellent job. Chris Paul and I have talked, he's the chairman of the board for the, for the current Players Association. We are talking about how to just go ahead and change the name. Michelle Roberts says it should be the Spencer Hayward rule because people should know when they go across that stage that somebody made a supreme sacrifice. Adam Silver is in an agreement. I just, I don't know where we got stuck with this lobbying as uh, thing right now. And uh, I think it's going to happen this year because what happened, the old NBA took my rule and gave it to Larry Bird. It was called the Larry Bird rule now in the books, mm-hmm. but it's not Larry Bird rule. And Larry is always telling me, it's not my rule. And I came in under yours. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want your rule. I'm the great Larry Bird. You know, get the Spencer Haywood rule out of here.
1: <laughs> uh, th- there's so many aspects of your life to me that is really interesting. And we'll start. Uh, in the NBA because, like you said, you're with Seattle. I mean, you play for the Knicks, uh, mm-hmm. obviously the Lakers. Talk to me about the high and obviously the lows okay. uh, of Spencer Haywood in the NBA.
0: Well, in the NBA, my first uh, five years in the NBA with Seattle, um, again, I was every year I was basically runner-up to MVP. I could never get it because of politics. And in uh, like two years, I was second team all pro. But most of my years, I was first team all pro. And then uh, Bill Russell came as a coach up in Seattle. We went to the playoffs for the first time in team history. And there was players who thought that I was too big for my britches. So uh, Bill he'll yield to them as well as I yield to them, saying man, if they don't want me here, I got to get out of here. And so I, I ended up in New York uh, with the New York Knicks. And I came in with the idea that I'm going to save the Knicks after they don't want two championships, of course. <laughs> so I made a bad press conference entrance. And also I, I, I didn't realize that Willis Reed had just retired, Dave DeBush had just retired and Jerry Lucas, so I'm like, oh boy, I gotta carry this kind of load for three players. And Phil Jackson was on his last legs. He was coaching with Red Holzman as a player. And uh, Bill Bradley is writing his memoirs. Earl Monroe had just had foot surgery. Walt Frazier was practicing with that big old thesaurus that he was carrying around because he wanted to get he was gonna go into broadcasting, and he had to be Clyde when he got in. He couldn't just go in like everybody else and talks for it. He had to have the adjectives to express his way. And so we were playing basketball there in New York. I was just not playing up to myself. I hurt my leg, but I I did got a chance to fall in love. I fell in love in New York for the first time. And I met and married Iman, the fashion model.
1: Yeah, so you married married a supermodel who's at the height of her popularity at that time. I mean, the life couldn't get any better, Spencer Haywood. (laughs) What was that like?
0: Well, that was like, it was beautiful because she was from Somalia and and from a Muslim community, and that settled me into another lifestyle. But then we got a chance to go to Studio 54. We hung out. We did things. We traveled to France to uh, because the shows were in Paris. We did all of the shows. And then one day they were shooting a film called um, I can't think of the name of it. Michael Williamson and Otto Preminger, the great uh, mm-hmm. director, mm-hmm. he saw her walking down the street with me. And said, "This is who should be in this film," and so we were able to go to England and shoot the film. And Lord Snowden, who was married to the Queen's sister, he said, "I'm going to do the, the layout for this for this expose." And so he laid out a, a, a photography shoot for both of us, and it was about the film and stuff like that. And we finished the film and everything. So we in the in, this, in the in the the screening room with every all of the people who participated. And I'm sitting over there looking at, is that Gato Barbieri over there? And it was a saxophone, cause I'm a jazz man, you know? <laughs> I'm looking at him like, oh my God, this is... Imam <laughs> was like, you fool, you can't be with the queen. You with the queen and everybody, what are you talking about jazz for? And I was like, man, did you hear his horn on this tune? You had to, you gotta hear this tune. And uh, so we had a great time, man. We enjoyed ourselves. We, then she got pregnant with my first child, Zuleika. Uh, Zuleika was born. And so uh mom was a little lonely in town because her family was still in exile in, 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 in North Africa, I mean, East Africa. And so we decided to bring them in and stay at the brownstone that we had in New York. And so we brought her sister Nadia, her sister Idil over, and her brother Elias, and they live with us in New York. And so we were like pretty cool family. I didn't know yeah. most of the time what they were saying, but because they're <laughs> Somali and you know, but they speak English as well. So we just had a pretty good time, man. We we enjoyed ourselves. We used to go down to the Village, uh, Village Vanguard, and the Village Gate, the Blue Note, listening to all of the jazz and. I remember she had a big surprise for me. I went well, to go see this girl, man. You got to go, see, we got to go see this girl on Broadway. And it was like, okay, come on, man. I know it's some, some hearty torty stuff. So I go into this <laughs> theater and this girl is playing Fontaine, a one-man show. Yeah, I'm Fontaine doing this. And she had on a mop and everything. It was Whoopi Goldberg, her wow. first Broadway show. And I was like, Oh, this is so great. <laughs> so we just had ourselves, you know, we, we, we did
1: everything. Do you and think it was, it, was soon. it New York? Was it New York where, uh, because during your career there was drug use, mm-hmm. was, was it New York? Is well, that New where York it started?
0: Was not like that kind of drug use. So when I got, and then after playing in New York and then I ended up being traded to the LA Lakers I get to the Lakers, we got Magic Johnson, we got Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you got Jamal Wilkes, you got Norm Nixon, Michael Cooper. We were loaded. (laughs) And so I'm like hanging out with my old friends in in Los Angeles and they're like, man, everybody is doing this new thing, man. You gotta check this shit out. And so I was like, I don't wanna wanna do that, man. I tried doing coke and it just didn't work for me. And then, no, 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 they ain't like Coke like that. It's like Coke that's cooked up. It's like free basing. I was like, okay, let me try a hit. I hit a hit and I went, oh my God. Then I stayed all night at this place and I'm like, what the hell is this shit? And, and I watched my game go from, I got there because I was traded from the, from the New Orleans Jazz. I was averaging 25 points and 12 rebounds my game go down like a a plane crashing and my family life, my mom was like all in shambles because you know we had a miscarriage at that time it was just so much drama and the players on the team was like what is wrong with you Wood come on man get it together man and I I couldn't get it together I, I just I mean we get to the finals and here I am I, I went out that night and I did some coke, and I did uh, not just snowing, I was just freebasing, mm-hmm. I freebasing coke, and I couldn't I couldn't get my heart to stop boom 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 boom. So then I said, well, give me them Quaaludes. So I took the Quaaludes, and I'm like, oh boy. So then I get to the practice, and we have our stretching exercise. We're in the finals now. Didn't we play the Sixers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. I'm you know stretched out on the floor and I'm sleeping. Jamal is like punching me. Get up, man, come on. The Coach is looking at you. Everybody's looking at me. I am like, I can't, man. I can't get up. Look at my arms. So they sent me home. And then I go back and, and I start playing again, but my hands were gone. The drugs had taken my hands. We're in the finals against Philadelphia, the first two games, and, and I, Magic would be coming down the floor and he's looking at me like, and I was like, cut, and it, the ball hit me right in my hand. Boom! It's supposed to be a dunk layup, and I couldn't, I couldn't hold it. Wow! I'm like and so the team was getting nervous. You know, like, man, we got a plan because Wood's gonna be mad because I was being, I was not myself. I was not cooperative or anything. Mm. And so uh, by the, the third game, before we got to travel to Philadelphia, they said, well, they called me and said, you're gonna need to get some help because you're not right and we know what it is. Mm. And like, I don't need no help, I'm not. what are you talking about? Y'all gonna like set me down? Like, no, we're gonna <laughs> suspend you. And I was like, you gonna suspend me in the finals? And they did and that's when I went buck wild and then we won the championship And I lost out on everything. I mean, I I won the championship with them and everything. I missed three games. I missed four games, I think. And Kareem missed three. So, and Magic had the greatest year of any playoff in playoff history. He was the MVP, 19 years old or 20 years old. He turned that stuff out. And then uh, the league was like, you know, we need to get this stigma off of us with cocaine because the league had been permeated by so many players using it. So let's take the big guy down, Spencer, send him to Italy, and let him give him a good example. They sent me to Italy and that's when I got myself clean and straight and started playing again and, and life was good. And then
1: I, I, I read not to cut you off, but I read that it had gotten so bad, especially when, uh, the the Lakers had sent you and suspended you. That you were so upset uh, and obviously enthralled in the drug use that uh, you had a friend from Detroit and you guys, Coach Westhead, you guys he, he concocted some kind of plan to kind of get back at him. Correct?
0: Yeah, well, that was just in, 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 in and 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 talking in the get high mode. You know, mm. it was never a plan that we went out to do this. Right? Because you know, my mom called me in the middle of this big get high scheme. Uh, and she said, you are up to some devilment here. And the Lord don't like that son." And I was like, oh my God, she must be looking at me because you know, you when you're high on coke, you paranoid all the time, you you And I'm thinking, my mother is somewhere in this house. So I panicked and we never even moved on that idea. Wow. And So I I ended up going to Italy, getting myself together, coming back to the NBA, playing in Washington, where I took them to the playoffs. I'm feeling really good. Everything is beautiful. And my second year there, Iman is in an automobile accident, a cab accident in New York City. Her face is demolished, the family's all in shambles because she was running the whole household with my daughter, my my in-laws there in New York, living with us. So I... I was paranoid that the NBA was going to put me out the pastor again. So I decided, well, on Bernie Bickerstaff and Gene Shoes, who was my coach at the Washington Bullets, I'm out of here. I got to go home to take care of my family. Because I didn't know how to ask them. So I said, I'm retiring. I got to go home and do that. And they was telling me, all you got to do is ask us for some time off. You ain't going to stab me in the back. And I was, you know, so I went back to New York and... And that's how my whole
1: career ended, yeah. just like that. Wow. Well, listen, you, you have a fascinating life. Uh, you, you also have a, a book that recently came out. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell the people about the book, uh, and the name of the book and how they can get it.
0: Well, the name of the book is The Spencer Haywood Rule. They're making of an iconoclast. But just say The Spencer Haywood Rule because that's what I'm asking the players who are benefiting from it. And we have like, Out of the 500 players in the NBA, we have like 490 under this ruling. So they should change the name uh, to the Spencer Hayward rule. Um, I have a movie that's out. that's on uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, It's called Full Court. I have uh, a strong marriage with my wife, Linda, who's listening over there on the other side of the house. (laughs) This is for 29 years. I have Four daughters, Zuleika, my oldest daughter from Iman, she's uh, uh, married with the one daughter. I have a granddaughter, uh, Lavinia. And uh, uh, my next daughter, Courtney, she's a professor at Lincoln University, uh, historically black college. And my next daughter is Shakira. She is uh, a practicing psychologist Practicing psychiatry uh, in New York City. And my youngest daughter, she just left uh, Slam magazine. So those are my girls. And, and I have two grandsons Landon Spencer Haywood and uh, Golden Spencer Haywood, but he ain't no Haywood. But, uh, Golden. That is fantastic. He's one. So life is good. I, I've been blessed. I have survived prostate cancer. I have survived COVID. I have, I've just been so blessed, and God has seen me through all of the ups and downs to have me right in front of you on on your show. Who I admire you, your broadcasting, and all of this stuff. So I'm like, whoa! This
1: well, it's is an honor? Cool stuff. It's an no, it's an honor. It's really an honor to have you in. I saw a uh, part of your movie, Kim Clemens who helped write that is a phenomenal producer. And yes. uh, I really uh, enjoyed it. This segment of the show is brought to you by Man Cave Health. It's a public charity that raises awareness nationwide for prostate cancer. Many of you know, I battled prostate cancer. And it had it not been for me taking a PSA test, you know, the doctor told me I could have been dead uh, within a year. 30,000 men die every year from prostate cancer simply because they didn't know their number, they didn't get an annual check. And also do you know one out of every four black men are diagnosed with prostate cancer? How important is your health to you?
0: My health to me is everything and it's about a PSA. and. Now, when you say to guys, and I'm working with uh, the Prostate Cancer Foundation of America, along with the NBA, we have uh, solicited 30 teams and 30 owners to get involved in this program. Uh, Grant Hill and Calvin Hill is one of our, our spokespersons. They are, every time they make an assist, it goes to Prostate Cancer Foundation or to whoever is raising funds for prostate cancer uh, and with the Atlanta Hawks. And so I think it's going to be replicated throughout the NBA, which is a good thing. And uh, uh, you know, when you tell people uh, of Iowa uh, is that, you know, man, when you're getting your physical, get your PSA, I ain't getting no physical anyway. What am I going to need a physical for? And you say, just PSA is just, you're drawing blood and you're just getting your PSA. And okay, well, once I get my PSA, and it comes back positive, or it's my 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 numbers high. Mm-hmm. My levels are going up. You mean that guy gonna put his finger up my butt? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you gotta have a you know, you gotta check it out. Right. So they have all of these excuses of why not, and it's life-saving. And the women who love us, I mean, you got to jump on us too, because men. You know how stubborn we are. Oh, yeah. Yes, we are. Hey, come on, man. I ain't going to no doctor. I know more than the doctor. <laughs> and so, and, and I looked at my family tree, my brother, Roy, he's been a cancer, uh, prostate cancer survivor. And so it is in my genes. It is in a lot of our genes. And so we have to really look at taking care of ourselves. This is no time to mess around. And COVID has shown us You can have prostate cancer, you can catch COVID, you can do all of these things. So now men health is like ridiculous and women health. We have to look forward to trying to eradicate this one
1: because we can, all we have to do is get tested. The mission for Man Cave Health is to encourage all men to take just one hour out of the year to either get a physical and a PSA test. And with donations, from people just like you, you can help other men who maybe don't have the resources to pay for a PSA test or a physical exam. All you've got to do is go to the Man Cave Health website at mancavehealth.org and sign up for their free newsletter. It is a great resource. And please make a donation because this public charity is trying to make sure that all men can get a physical and a PSA test and all you've got to do to donate to this public charity is text the last stand to four, four, three, two, one here with the great Spencer Haywood from the NBA and Spencer for everyone who uh, watch and listens to this podcast. We allow them to submit questions. We got some on social media for you. So let's get right to them. Uh, This one from Dre from Twitter. He says, in your opinion, who is the greatest Laker Kareem, duh,
0: <laughs> excuse me, hello, yoohoo. <laughs> but now, Wilt is a close follower, but uh, LeBron is coming up. And I'll tell you who's the best player, I think, in, to ever play, the GOAT. You wanna
1: know? Well, that, that's later, that's later, okay. that's later. Okay. But, but you know, a lot, of, a lot of people, especially Laker fans, they love Kobe too. And I think- Kobe, that, Oh man, I forgot, oh my
0: God, what a man. Yes, yes. Kobe is number one. Over yeah. over Kareem, huh? Over Kareem because, you know, Kareem is seven foot two, so you can't like just, he's in a whole nother category, you know? And,
1: yeah.
0: You know, Kobe was the man. Uh, the, Kobe's over there, over
1: in the closet, some shoes. I love it. Uh, Carlos from Facebook asks, what current NBA Player or players remind you of yourself when you play? I would I would take a mixture of LeBron
0: James and and Giannis uh, because I was long and stretchy, but I was a bully kind of player like LeBron, <laughs> and and I rebound like like the Greek. And yeah. So you know, so those two were my guys. I, I, I shot like Durant, but I, I you know. I, you know, that was a, that's another kind of
1: level there. Let me tell you something. You bad boy. If you a combination of Durant, Giannis, and LeBron, you won bad Mama Jamma, Spencer Haywood. Well now,
0: you know, in my rookie year, these people should know that I was doing 30 and 20 30 and
1: 50. yes, yeah. I mean, yeah.
0: I love and how- when I was in Seattle, I averaged uh twenty-nine and thirteen.
1: So uh, I'm like,
0: not just a dude. Speak on it,
1: brother. Speak on it. <laughs> OK, Spencer Haywood, it's time for the last segment of this show. We call it The Last Stand. I'm going to give you a series of questions. You give me the first thing. First thing that comes to your mind. You ready? Yes. When it comes to repping the teams you play for and played for, what team do you rep the most? Is it the Sonics? Is it the Knicks? Is it the Lakers? Is it Washington? Is it the Jazz?
0: <laughs> I got on my, my Laker gear because I won a championship there. But I, I, I would think that I rep more the the Knicks because we don't have a team in Seattle, so you don't have no proper, you don't have a team, yeah. so you can't rep something that you don't have. And they didn't the Oklahoma when they stole the team, they didn't rep us good. But I went into the Hall of Fame as a Seattle
1: superstar. Love it, New York Knicks. Uh, who was, in your opinion? The best athlete at the 68 Olympics was it Tommy Smith, Bob Beeman, George Foreman or Spencer Haywood? Spencer Haywood
0: because I set the record in most points in the history of America. I was the youngest player to ever play in the Olympics and also I set the field goal percentage that still stands today at 72%. Love but it. I, I would have to give it I would have to give it to Tommy and
1: John though. Okay, okay, in your opinion, who is the GOAT when it comes to the NBA?
0: LeBron James.
1: Mm. okay, and you said it decisively, no Jordan- Yes, I sure did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, who is the greatest player you had to play against? Kareem. Mm. Yeah. last but not least. Uh, when it all comes down to it, Spencer Haywood should be known as the man who did what?
0: Created wealth for the NBA and for the players. The Spencer Haywood rule is the name of the rule.
1: I love it. Spencer Haywood, one of the greatest to ever play basketball. Man, your life is fascinating. Um, I wish you all success, obviously, with the book. Uh, with the movie. I have been looking forward to this. I just want to say thank you for doing it.
0: Thank you so much for having
1: me. Hey, listen, that's what we do here on The Last Stand. We bring you some of the biggest names in sports and entertainment, just like the great Spencer Haywood. Thanks for watching, everybody. We'll see you again next week.
0: Thank you.